see? Catch burritos dropping down the chimney. Hear the jingle bells? It must be stuffed crust cheese. Oh, Trust me, I keep it popping like the hot jerk chicken that I got in my stocking. Happy holidays, it's a doggy dog Christmas. A lot of treats to complete on the wish list. Whatever the venue, hit up the menu. Did somebody say? Just Woo, good morning. Happy Thursday. You know, we made it. We're at the end of the week almost. You know, Thursday is weekend eve. So thanks for tuning in. I'm Babs Rose Ivy. Welcome to Love Babs Love Talk. So I'm over at the New Haven Independent website reading up on the absent absentees, the absences at Common Ground High School. I guess they have a having an absent absence problem. You know, it's funny because, you know, um the comments used to be. Why aren't there any black kids at Common Ground? Common Ground has always been pretty much heavily predominantly black since its beginning. But yet people sort of have this mindset that it's, uh, you know, uh, luxury coffee drinkers. <laughs> so it's funny to sort of see the comments like, are there no white kids that go here? Don't ask white people why white kids don't go here. I don't <laughs> what would be the recruitment for white kids? I, I don't understand that. You know, I, I, but it's not my fight because I'm not on that board. I do not chair it. So uh, they keep me, they keep me posted every now and again. I run into people, uh, but it's not my fight anymore. And I care deeply about that school, but not enough to go and serve in any really, in real capacity. I don't, I don't say that with uh, malice or whatever. I just say, you know, that's just the way it goes. So. But I'll keep my ear to the ground. Uh, trust me, I will. Uh, uh, let's see what else is going on. Yale expands on Broadway with a seven million buy. I mean, I'm like everybody else. I thought they owned the whole block. <laughs> what what was left to buy? I feel like they got off cheap with seven million. You know, Yale are buying some stuff, and then they won't be good landlords. Do you know what I mean? Like they're not good stewards. That's what I hear. I don't know. Come after me. I'm just saying. I just know what I hear from people. Yeah. Um. So that's just the uh, that's just the way it goes. So anyway, that's all I want to talk about for that. I don't got nothing else. They did have the uh the Church Street South meeting. Uh, I guess it was uh, a couple of days ago, two days ago. Um, and, you know, Hill folks came out, met with, uh, you know, the Elm City communities folks. And, uh, you know, a lot of comments. So there's lots of comments. So if you if you want to get into that conversation, you know, the talented Lord Glesby uh, uh, penned that article and that piece. So, you know, um, I, I I just want to see something good be done with the with the with the land. No, I grew up there. You know, I was there at the very beginning uh, when those trees were just put in. So that's how far back I go with it. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a dog in that fight anymore. Um, I hope whatever the design is that it is a beautiful aesthetic uh, and that people are pleased with it. I, I don't, I don't think we can recapture what it was, and I don't even think we should try. I think the people that live there that want to go back, well, if they got the right to go back, then maybe that's what they do. But it won't be the same. So I just want people to understand that. 
Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. Uh, I'm gonna keep my eye to it, and uh, I keep listening and see what happens. Um, there's also a piece up of the Independent. Mandy buys Alberta's student housing for 7.4 million. You know, I just think anything that Mandy touches is just trash. It's going to be trash. Do they have any good properties that anybody would want to be a part of? Is there anything like close to decent? I, I don't know. So I don't know. I just think they're just, I don't think they're good stewards of New Haven either. But that's just, just my opinion. I'm no realtor. I just play one on the radio. You know, I just play one on the radio. So we'll see what happens. I'm going to leave that alone too. There's a lot of news I'm leaving alone today. Because, <laughs> you know, it's getting close to Friday. I'm going to leave it alone. Uh, I've got a colonoscopy coming up on Monday. And uh, I got some rules that I got to follow. I don't even think I've been following them. Uh, so much, so much, so much. So we'll see what happens. Uh, let me see. Let me see what else is going on in the world. Um, I'm going to uh, see the salvagers tonight at uh, Yale Rep. Tonight is opening night. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go have dinner at Harvest and then uh, go see the play. So I'm excited uh, to see it, see what, see what's happening. I have like, I think something itch, is itching me. So, uh, so I'm going to go see that tonight. I'm very excited. Uh, and uh, I'll let you know tomorrow what I thought. You know, I'm I'm not gonna go see X the Opera because it's closing this weekend, and uh, I won't have time to. I'm not gonna have time to get there. So, I think the last one is uh, the last showing is um, Saturday, I think. So, so I won't have time because I've got other stuff that I have to do, and. Uh, it's going to be uh challenging so so yeah so but i am going to go to the theater tonight i'm excited about that and uh the play is like an hour and a half which is right up my alley you know i don't think there's a um i don't think there's an intermission either so he's just gonna ride this ride this ride for an hour and a half So I'll just go get some dinner and uh, see what happens. See what happens. So, uh, Benita Grubbs is retiring from uh, Community Action Aid. Uh, uh, it's a Christian Community Action Agency. Yeah. So I guess she's like, I'm going to go do something else now. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I've done this a lot and I'm going to go step down. So, so high five to her. You know, she's my sorority sister too. We are members of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. 
So, uh, so yeah. So I have not seen her since this uh, revelation. So, so hopefully I'll see her soon. And uh, I was thinking about going to church on Sunday because um, uh, uh, Reverend Barber is joining um, Dixwell Congregational Church on Sunday. So I might pop in there. We'll see what the how the weather is stacking up. We shall see. Um, I still have not bought my ticket for uh, Senegal. That is my goal to do uh, today, tomorrow. Definitely tomorrow. So. Or today. I could do it today. No, no harm, no foul. I absolutely could do it today. But I think I'm a I think I'm gonna hold on till tomorrow. So I can get my ticket. I know my voice seems a little harsh, right? I don't know why. I think because I'm tired. Uh I had a little bit of restless sleeping. You know, so uh, a little bit of restless sleeping, not not a whole lot, just a little bit. And uh, I was out and about yesterday and I went to uh, DSW and I bought some Pumas. I needed some new sneakers. Now, I just bought new sneakers like, I don't know how, how old these sneakers are, early last spring or something. But you know how you have a sneaker and one side, my right foot up on at my baby toe, it just rubs it the wrong way. So it hurts it after a period of time. So I was like, I cannot work out any sneakers because it would just be irritating that side of my foot. And I just can't stand it. So I went, uh, I went to DSW because I, I, where do you buy sneakers these days? I don't know. So I went to DSW and uh, and bought sneakers. And I bought some Pumas and they were so comfortable. <laughs> I was like, woo-wee. <laughs> this is nice. So, so I did a reel. I, I made two reels. I made a reel with Robert and I from the gym yesterday. And then I made a reel this morning with my new sneak buying my new sneakers. You know, just showing them. Because I've been wanting to make a reel, you know, you know, make a little video with music to it. So it's kind of fun. I'm not good at it. I just made me too. So, uh, but they're fun to do. And uh, I'm going to do better. 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 So, uh, uh, so yeah, so I, I bought some black Pumas. And I wanted black sneakers. I didn't want white sneakers. I didn't want white sneakers. So so these are black sneakers with like a like a creamy sole, like a very thin creamy sole. And uh they look sleek. I was like, oh, I like these. And then I put them on. I was like, oh God, my feet are already happy. So I don't know what I'm gonna do with the other sneakers. I don't know if I sell them or Drop them off at Goodwill, or I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't think I could keep them because, you know, I, I just can't wear shoes that hurt. So we'll see what happens. 
I mean, I don't know. That's that's just where we are. I don't I don't I don't know what to do. So we'll see. You know, maybe I could stretch them out on that side. It's just that one little side that's just like it's just a little tight. You know. And even if I put them on with socks, I still feel it. So I don't know. Maybe I take them to the cobbler and say, Can you stretch this out right here? And they're, you know, they're just sneakers. But they're such good looking. See, they're purple. I like them. But my new Pumas, they're nice on the feet. Nice, nice on the toes. I was like, ooh, I like this. So we'll see what happens. Um, I, I did catch some of the service for um, Rosalind, First Lady Rosalind Carter yesterday on the news. I caught some of it. And uh, it was really quite moving. And uh, and to see former President uh, Jimmy Carter in the space uh, with a, a a quilt around him was really nice. So, you know, we we get old, we age. I mean, we're all aging. You know, we're not going to stay young. We're not going to stay youthful. We're not going to stay. You know, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you will age. You know, um, and they have lived an exemplary life of service and commitment to this country that is unrivaled by by most, unrivaled. Um, and to watch their love story. So um, their daughter, who y'all remember when she was a little kid, like she grew up in the White House. Um, and she read... Uh, her father's letter to her mother from like, I want to say uh, one of the wars. And uh, it was such a beautiful moving letter. You know, so much passion in it. And you could see them. So someone really ought to do their story now. Has it been done? I don't know. I mean that's a that's a that's a love story worth telling. You know they were married for seventy five, however long they was married seventy five years, seventy years, seventy five years, whatever. I mean that is a very long time. I can't even imagine. <laughs> Wait, first of all, I'd have to live that long. Uh, you know, I'd have to live that long. Um, so he's James Earl Carter Jr. And uh, uh, he was president from 1977 to 1981. Uh, 81 was the year I graduated from high school. So he was my president during high school. And, uh, you know, uh, they let him come to the funeral in a wheelchair. And uh, I didn't realize they had um, four children. Uh, John William Jack Carter, James Earl Chip Carter III, uh, Donald Jeffrey Carter, and Amy Lynn Carter. And Amy is the one that I remember because she was a child in the White House. 
So we got to be about the same damn age. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, he was in the military in the late 1940s, early 1950s. Um, so just like, wow. Uh, so that's a long time he was born in 1924 he was born October 1st 1924 in uh, Plains Georgia and they just was always decent and kind people you know history will be kind to them seriously and uh and they had a life of public service, which is, uh, you know, amazing. And uh, and President Carter is 99 years old. I don't know who could live that long. So <sighs> anyone, uh, uh, one of three presidents to have won the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, well, he's the third. Yeah, the third. The third American president to win the uh, Nobel Peace Prize after uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. So, and you know Henry Kissinger just passed away too. So you talking about end of a, a time? Gee whiz! <laughs> Dick Cheney's still alive, ain't he? <laughs> Only the good die young. <laughs> but yeah, Henry Kissinger uh, uh, passed away, I believe. I believe if I'm not mistaken. Let me look that up. Uh, yeah, he uh, yeah, he died. He passed away yesterday, and he was a hundred. So, so there, all these cats are all around the same age. And you know, you talk about somebody who had a storied life. Henry Kissinger, he was the man back in the day. You know, he, you talk about a, using diplomacy. That's such a skill and an art that is lost right now, I think. Just saying. Say whatever you want about him. You know, he had he he had a he had a he had a particular uh skill set and uh you know he was a scholar turned diplomat who uh who uh, engineered the United States opening to China and negotiated his exit from Vietnam and used cunning ambition and intellect to remake American power relationships with the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War you know I, I don't I don't think anybody possesses that that level of diplomacy anymore, you know. He was he was an intellectual guy. I don't I don't know if we have any of those in 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 service. <laughs> no shade, no shade. Just saying. Um, uh, Henry Kissinger was the last of the the red hot diplomats. I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean. He he is what I I have wanted to you know I love the geopolitical consultant 
you know, like he could look out in the world and say, okay, this is what's happening over here. This is what's happening over here. Let me bring these people together. Like, I love that kind of strategic work. You know, I like that. And, uh, you know, history will bear out whatever, but for my money, I mean, my favorites of this era of that time, I mean, I, I, Henry Kissinger for me, um, just, just was the guy that I dug. Uh, I, I feel the same way about Madeline Albright. You know, I thought she I thought she had a particular skill set uh, that is unmatched and unseen these days. I don't know who has diplomacy. I think Reverend Jackson, um, Jesse Jackson, um, is was uh, unofficial diplomat as well, had the skill set. You know, and by skill set, I mean, you know, they had... Uh, 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 intellectual prowess that I don't see these days, you know, particularly, especially in the era of Trump. There's no intellectual prowess amongst any of these people, none of them. Um, so, uh, and so, and it's sorely lacking in in the political landscape. I I don't know who who we could. Um, say uh Henry Kissinger of our of our time. I don't know if we could say um um a, a life of I mean I think President Barack Obama um for a life of service is is gonna bear out beautifully. Do you know what I mean? Like I think that's gonna be a win, you know, because he came to it from a life of service. You know, um community organizing is no no easy feat. And to do it in Chicago, baby. So, um, you know, but still, no one can touch the Carters in terms of commitment to service. Um, you know, and they, you know, they did all this work for Habitat for Humanity. And I mean, out there to the bitter end, building houses for folks. I mean, that that that's some feat. And I, I, know, I have done Habitat for Humanity, uh, the women's build, uh, back, way back before I was married, before children, before all that, you know, um, and there's a couple of houses here in Newhallville that I worked on, one in the hill and a couple here in Newhallville that I still pass by. So, so it's no easy feat. And if you ever, let me tell you something, anybody who's listening, if you want to learn how to build some stuff, go volunteer for Habitat for Humanity. You will learn how to lay tile. You will learn how to, <laughs> you, you will learn this stuff. You'll learn how to paint. You'll learn how to fix that. You'll learn. It's a good, it's a good way to learn. And they tell you, if you don't have any fear of holding a hammer, we got you. But anyway, I digressed. Um, so yeah. I mean, it's just a it's just a uh, a time. You know, it was just a time. And uh not unlike I don't I don't know who we could point to now who could negotiate us out of world chaos. I, I don't know these players, so I don't know. Maybe there maybe there's someone in the ranks that is behind the scenes doing this work. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know. I don't know. But uh I do know um that uh he was a one of a kind cat. 
and uh and so were the carters um you know and you know how you know how we you know how we do in the black community death comes in threes <laughs> now we know there's more than three people that die at any particular time but you know like in the same cohort or same genre do you know what i mean like we lost Rosalind, um, firstly Rosalind Carter, and Henry Kissinger, and then we, you know, somebody else. And that'll that'll tie up that trilogy, and then we move on to the next thing. Uh, you know, and listen, I I listen. It is not lost on me. Henry Kissinger and all these cats, with their hand in genocide, with their hand in crimes and all this I it's not lost I there's enough blood to be on everybody's hands <laughs> so so I, I'm not suggesting that he was a saint I'm not I'm saying that I've not seen anybody with the intellectual prowess of diplomacy as Henry Kissinger and any of these cats now listen I I I I am uh, American, and I know something about American history. And there's there's enough blood on the grounds of America, and enough blood that uh, America has exacted across the world. So that is not lost on me. I'm not Pollyanna. I I understand. <laughs> I understand America's bloodthirst. I get it. So you don't, no one got to take me to task because I know people like, oh, how could you praise Henry Kissinger? I'm not praising Henry Kissinger. What I'm doing, what I'm saying is I've yet to see anybody who has the intellectual prowess for, di di for diplomacy the way that he had. I don't see it. So, and while we're talking about, you know, whatever, uh, we we are we are watching genocide play out in a couple of places around the world that we are not lifting a finger to combat. Uh, what is going on in the Congo is uh, it is beyond shameful. It is beyond shameful. It is the second poorest country in the whole wide world. Why? Because European countries have raped and pillaged that country for its minerals and did not share with the people of that country. And 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 the reason why I think we don't talk about it, one, because we don't care about Africa. Two, we like our gadgets, our iPhones, our smartphones, our TVs. We like all of that. And we don't care the price that had to be paid to bring these conveniences to us. That's the God's honest truth. We don't care. And we don't take the time to find out what is happening. That's that's number three. Uh, number four refer to number one, two, and three. We don't care about Africa, not near parts of it. <laughs> we, we, we like 
the minerals that provide the goods that we consume. That's that's the truth. We we don't question where how how iPhones are made and and who is making them. We don't we don't question that. The same way we don't question about a whole lot of things. As long as we consuming, as long as the TVs are cheap, I can get my hands on the latest and the brightest and the fastest. I don't care if people are enslaved to do it. That's the American way of thinking. I don't care if you believe me or not. Go, go do, t- take the time and do some work. Go look. You can go look. You don't got to take my word from. I'm no historian. I'm just playing one on the radio. So you don't got to take my word for a damn thing. You know what you can do? You can go look. <laughs> you go. You can go look. That's all. Fine. Go look up Congo. See what's happening. And then see if you can sleep at night. <laughs> Once you know. You know. But just know. We all got blood on our hands. Everybody. There's enough blood for all the hands. Enough. You know, so so we're seeing genocide play out Congo. We're seeing genocide play out Gaza. We're seeing genocide play out Sudan. We, I mean, we what? <laughs> we, I mean, it is. Listen, you you gotta take the the you gotta take the bad with the good, you know. And Americans, I think we are the least educated people on the planet in terms of world things. You know, we don't we don't concern ourselves uh, with world affairs, not in the way that other countries do. You know, you go to other countries and you watch the news. The news is very sort of world centered. Our news isn't world centered. You know, I mean, we couldn't have bought Al Jazeera because <laughs> we just thought it was Muslim propaganda. People are stupid. They don't, don't even know what propaganda is. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I wish Americans would have a, a passing understanding of world news, but we they don't. They just don't because Fox News creates a, a barrier to that. You know, does Fox News even talk about World news? No. So I don't. We 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 are our own enemies in this country. We are our own assassins and our own enemies. You know, we we are. So so we're watching genocide in real time. You know, it's not like you know when 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 we were, you know, first hearing about the Holocaust. Do you know what I mean? And and how nobody believed the Holocaust was happening. You know, Hitler was marching Jews left and right to to concentration camps. And the whole world was like yawning, like, oh, yeah, whatever. That's not our problem. Because the world didn't, the world hated Jews. So that's why I don't understand how Israel could be the way that they are when they know they was just in this situation 70 years ago. <laughs> like y'all wasn't wanted nowhere in the world. And you was a nuisance. And that's why Hitler was able to do what he did for as long as he did, because no one cared about y'all. Not nobody. They didn't want you in their countries. They didn't want you anywhere. (laughs) And then somebody was like, damn, you know what they're doing over there? We've got to stop it. But look how long it took before intervention happened. Six million Jews. 
<laughs> Shit. You think they could have intervened before 6 million Jews was marched to their deaths? Do you think at any point somebody would have intervened before 6 million Jews was, was walked to their deaths? You Really? You think? Back those days, you know how long it takes to kill 6 million people? <laughs> they didn't have the technology. You had to like, I know people had to be like, damn, my neighbors are missing. Where are they? Whole places. I I know people had to, like, I I think, I hear something. I, rumors are, and then nobody reacted. Six million? You don't notice six million people being marched to their deaths and no one intervened? Because they didn't care to intervene until it was like, all right, now we got to intervene. Now we got to intervene. So... We got to intervene in Congo because people were being killed. We ceasefires got to stay stopped in Gaza. I mean, it's just the right. I don't give a damn what your politics are. The business of killing people cannot be the business. <laughs> the business of killing people cannot be right. Uh. I just, I don't know what, I don't know, I don't know what humans think. I, I don't know where they think they're going to go be human at. Where else can you go and be human except on this planet, which is abundant and we treat it like scarcity and we act as though there's not enough room for people. It just boggles my mind how we are with each other how we are in the world. And everybody's got a rationale and a reason for why genocide should exist. Well, we have the right to defend ourselves. Okay. If we if we start from there all the time, and, and you do, I get it. I Listen, I'm Black in America. I understand that. But at some point, though, how do we get to a how do we get to higher ground? How do we get to higher ground with that thinking? You know, and somebody has to sort of say, all right, yeah, we do have the right to defend ourselves. How long should that be? What should happen? Ask the questions. Ask the hard question. What are we defending ourselves against? And what is causing us to have to defend ourselves against whatever? That's one part of the conversation. The second part of the conversation is who are we defending? You know, when we retaliate, who are we retaliating against? Who suffers the most under retaliation? We have to ask that question, right? That, that's another, another question. And we got to be ready to hear the answer. And the answer ought to be enough to sway us to sort of say, hold up, let's rethink this position because this thing and this thing and this thing. I'm no diplomat. I just play one on the radio. I just know we cannot kill our way out of conflicts. <laughs> Gang members know this. <laughs> Generals know this. We All of us know this on an intellectual level. We know it on an emotional level. We know it on a spiritual level. We cannot kill our way out of conflict. And yet here we are.
with so much unrest in the world, as if no one can pick up a, a pick 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 up a, a, a tool of diplomacy and sort of negotiate some peace. We could broker peace. We absolutely could broker peace. We are deliberately choosing not to. I be, I believe that if we wanted peace, we could have peace. If we want everybody in the world to be fed, we could feed everybody in the world. If we want people to be housed in the world, everybody in the world could be housed. What What's the problem? <laughs> I know greed and money. And, and money usually is the root to greed. And this notion that uh, some people don't deserve because they, they, there are people who believe, well, they, they come to the table with nothing but their hand out. You know, they they come to the table as beggars. And I and I and I push back on that and say, no, they don't come to the table as beggars. We we create beggars. We we create beggars because we can be preemptive. We can we can act in such a way that people don't have to beg. Seriously. We we can we can act in such a way that we do not create beggars of men and women. We we can act in a way that do, that do not create beggars of humans. We can. <laughs> it's not that, that's not hard. So so once we dispel that foolishness of people coming to the table with their hand out rather than us coming to the table serving, right? Like if if everyone says I'm just going to serve my fellow man, there's no money to be made in that. But I I I bet you there is, you know, when everybody is fed and housed and and clothed, um, then you can do some real commerce, right? Because then everybody will have some some equal footing, you know, and you're not making beggars of men, and children, and women, and then you you remove you remove um, predatory vulnerability you know um you give people what they need and some people believe that they 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 need more i don't even know what the more is you know and don't get me wrong don't don't get me wrong i appreciate luxury i appreciate nice things i appreciate f- fine things i i i don't got no judgment about that but what i do have a judgment about is when you think that your talent and your intellect alone is the only talent and intellect deserving of the, of of imbalanced riches, <laughs> we got to change that paradigm too. That's that's not how we should be thinking. And I'm not talking about you all can put labels on all you want. You can say, "Oh, Babs talking communism, socialism, whatever the ism is." You know what I'm talking? I just remember the Christ story and Christ is like, listen, I'm going to deal with the least among us first. I'm going to go deal with that because somebody's got to pay attention. And uh, I'm that guy. That's that's the Christ story. Right. So it's the it's the Allah story. It's the Christ story. It's the uh, uh, Gandhi's Mahatma, Mahatma Gandhi story. It's all it's all the story, all the stories. We just we just pick and choose what we want out of these things uh, that suits us. <laughs> we don't like sacrifice. I don't want sacrifice for my fellow man. Damn them! 
I don't care if they're hungry. <laughs> I don't care if they don't have shelter. I don't care if they don't have clothes. Damn them. They should work harder. <laughs> oh, oh, that's the prevailing thought. That's a that's a global thought. That's how that's how that's how we treat people as other when when we think that way. That's how people are harmed. That's how people are taken advantage of. That's how people are 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 enslaved. You know, we we know what to do. We've always known what to do. We know the right thing to do. We do. We absolutely do know what the right thing to do. I don't think there's anybody on this planet who does not know what the right thing to do. We know we shouldn't be killing people. Everybody will sit their little asses in church on Sunday and run through those Ten Commandments and all the whatever, thou shalt not kill. What? And then we'll go and support genocide all over this world <laughs> for for the right reasons. Quote, unquote, right reasons. So we know what to do. We just choose not to. And everybody's like, oh, but this and that, and this and that. All right, whatever. <laughs> Whatever, whatever. Yeah, listen, we will solve problems or we won't. You know, because I, I, this is what I know. We are all connected. And because we are all connected, what happens in Congo will have some far-reaching effects here. What happens in Gaza will have far-reaching effects here. What happens in the Sudan it will have far-reaching effects here. You know, when when we... When we uh, when we don't want to deal with our our uh, uh, immigration problem, it has far-reaching effects for us. You know, when we uh, have that dangerous com conversations about uh, othering people, you know, that's far-reaching effects for us. And and we 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 are so disconnected that uh, we think. That none of that stuff affects us. Oh, it doesn't affect me. I I live over here in my nice house with the picket fence, and I'm not concerned about those people, you know. But by hook and crook, you're gonna have to be concerned because we depend on whatever we consider those people to be. We depend on them. We need them, you know. And why wouldn't we want them to have a good life? Why wouldn't we want them? to eat well and to be healthy and to raise strong children and to, you know, benefit from the things that we believe are uh, having a worthwhile life. How, well, how do we, how do we decide that? You know, and why, and why is that okay? You know, and, and, and what do you think that people are going to get that you're not getting if you simply give it to them? <laughs> like, what is it that you think you're not going to get because they are getting something to eat or some housing or some clothing? What what are you lacking that they you think they're getting that you're not getting? And that's at the root of all of this stuff. Well, I don't they if I have to work, they should have to work. You know. <laughs> and these same people will sit their asses in churches all across this country. <laughs> Take communion, the whole thing, and they don't, and they don't see how these stories are are just the same stories that are playing out for hundreds and thousands of years that they just seem to miss. I don't see the Christ story in my everyday practical life. No, I don't. 
<laughs> Every time you drive past a homeless person, you know who that is? That's the Christ. <laughs> Every time you see people sitting on that green, fell over, drunk, high, whatever, that's the Christ. And we walk by every day. We act like we, Christ has been back here for so long, we don't even know. <laughs> we would recognize the Christ if he knocked on our door with a with a blinged out t-shirt on. <laughs> oh, help me. So I don't mean to be cynical in these holiday seasons, but I but I do think that this is the time where we can start to begin. You know, this is the season of magic, miracles, and light. And this is the time when we ought to be thinking about not just ourselves, but our our, our fellow humans. How do we how do we center them in, in the world? How how do we get to be good stewards of of country, of earth, of neighbor, of children, of schools, of of people, friends? How do we how do we be better at being better? How do we do that? And this is the time, I think. This is a season of magic and mystery and wonder and light. It's the perfect opportunity to uh, meditate um, how we should be in the world moving forward. I do believe that. Tomorrow, um, Advent, Advent begins. Well, actually, Sunday. But we're starting, for some of us, we're starting Advent early. Um, so that we could get all the Advent stories in by the time Christmas rolls around. So we're so tomorrow morning, uh, I start Advent, and um, I'll 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 share my Advent uh, uh, work, you know, with y'all starting tomorrow. Uh, I'll, I'll and then and I'll just put it out there, and you can just meditate on it, and and see you know what what resonates with you. I, I'm very serious about using this time as a time of discernment and a time of contemplation of who, who we want to be. And by we, I mean you, who do you want to be moving forward in the world? And, and, and let's put away last year's that, you know, cause we're coming into 2024 and we can put away 2023 things, you know, not ignore them, but just put them away and then begin anew for 2024. Like, how do we do that? How do we, how do we do that? And and here's your opportunity if you if you still have breath, um, to be a better person and and a better steward of your own lives because I believe if you're a good steward of your life then that radiates like a ripple on a pond it radiates out then everybody around you will want to be better when you're better everybody wants to be better around you when you're an asshole guess what assholes attract assholes <laughs> and assholes repel goodness that just does but if you strike the match of goodness, then you light, you light everything, you warm everything. And we could do that. We could, we could absolutely do that. I just want y'all to be contemplative. So tomorrow I'm going to, I'm going to, when I get my first advent that hits my mailbox from Hannah uh, Brencher, I'll, I'll read it tomorrow. And then I want you to be contemplative about it and meditate on it. You know, I'm going to start my, my prayer journal tomorrow. I'm going to, and believe me, I don't need a new journal. So folks, don't rush me no journals. I got boxes of journals. I'm one of these people, I go someplace and I see a pretty journal. I'm like, mm, I want that. Now I don't got like 25 million other pretty journals, <laughs> but it's something about a journal. I, just, I could never leave one in a store. So, <laughs> so, so I'm gonna go through my things sometime today and find, find a journal of my choice 
and and start start again start with advent and uh and start with prayers for people prayers for myself prayers for the world um prayers for all the all the things and no it, it and it'll make me a better person the goal is to be better than what i was yesterday you know better than i was yesterday and you know listen fall short fall short <laughs> i'm here to tell you i fall short but it doesn't stop me from attempting attempting cuz i never want to be um I never want to be the person that doesn't keep attempting to be better than I was, you know, and that's the growth part. And that's the, that's the Christ story to keep getting up and to keep uh, uh, seeing, looking for the Christ in, in every person, in every person. And I fail, <laughs> but I, I got to keep it. I got to keep trying. So I'm going to take a break. When I come back, I got, um, I've got a great guest coming on. I'm looking forward to talking to him. I've got um, Yale Law Professor Tom R. Tyler. He was awarded the Stockholm Prize in Criminology for pioneering research on legitimacy and procedural justice and policing democracies. So I want to hear all about that. And uh, so he's coming on at 1015. And we have a good, I hope, what will be a robust conversation about, you know, his work and what that looks like and, uh, and how he feels about winning this prestigious award. So I'll be back. Y'all hang in. built before 1978, your paint or even the soil around your home could contain lead. Lead paint can harm young children, affecting their kidneys and brain, slowing a child's growth and making learning difficult. But lead poisoning is 100% preventable. We have funding to keep you and your family safe. To learn more about our program, visit nhvhealth.org. Together, New Haven, we can get the lead out. Hi, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut. And you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org.
good morning. Welcome back to the second hour of Love Babs, Love Talk on Babs Rose Ivy. I'm delighted this morning to have Professor uh, Tom Tyler. He is the uh, a Yale Law School professor who just was awarded the Stockholm uh, Prize in Criminology for pioneering research on legitimacy and procedural justice in policing democracies. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you. How are you? How was your holiday? Everything really well. And, yeah. Know, last light of fall. Very pleasant. It now is, isn't it? <laughs> I know, I know. And this is Connecticut, so we, we are doubly blessed with this wonderful weather. So, yes. All right. So I, I was reading your bio. Impressive. Um, so the Stockholm, the Stockholm uh, uh, Prize in Criminology is like the Oscars of the of that of that particular world, right? Like you get one of those things. It's like it's like the golden statue. Um, and uh, yes, right. Like that's 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 like a big deal. So um, and uh, I had no idea uh, about uh, 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 the work that you were doing until I read your bio, and I was quite impressed um, that really what you're what you're what you have identified. And what you talk about in your research is the nature of interactions between uh, individuals and social institutions, including the police, including the police. So, so talk a little bit about um, historically what you have found out about uh, when the police interact with communities and with people. Sure. Well, you know, I think we could best understand this if we started out by looking back to the bad old days of the 1980s and 1990s. When we had things like crack cocaine and high rates of violent crime. And the police and courts became focused on lowering the crime rate. And that was pretty much what they looked at. Like, what's the crime rate? Are we lowering the crime rate in the immediate moment? Like this month, you know, what are the crime statistics now? And what they weren't paying much attention to is how the people in the community felt about the police and felt about the way the police were dealing with them, treating them in their efforts to manage problems of crime. So my work pretty straightforwardly says that's a big mistake. And it's a big mistake first because trying to use force to control people is not such a great idea. It doesn't work better than trying to talk to people, trying to reason with people, trying to explain your policies, treating people with dignity and respect. And second, it doesn't really build any trust for the police in different communities, in any communities, but particularly disadvantaged communities, communities that have a really bad history of being poorly policed. So a better way to approach dealing with communities is for the police, for courts, for prosecutors to be focused on how the people in those communities experience law enforcement. Do they think they're being treated fairly? Do they think they're being treated with dignity and respect? Do they understand why things are happening or policies explained? And if you do that, not only do you lower the crime rate in a more effective way, but you also build trust to build partnerships with communities. And that pretty much summarizes the line of argument that I've been pushing for the last 25 years with the point that as a researcher, I try to show it's true through research. In other words, I'm not just telling you 
that treating people with dignity and respect lowers the crime rate more than threatening them. I actually show that in my research. So there's an argument about how you ought to deal with communities and then there's the evidence part. And here's the evidence that shows that that's true. So the Stockholm Prize recognizes the importance of my work, but also other people's work in broadening the way we think about the relationship between the police and the community and saying that that relationship should be about the police building trust in the community, which involves treating people fairly. If you want people to trust you, you have to treat them fairly. And you have to treat them fairly in terms that they understand to be fair. You can't just say, well, this, I'm the police. This is what I think should be done, so you should just accept it. You have to actually talk to people, listen to people, think about what they say, explain your policies to them, discuss them, agree about them. So that's the shift in authority that's behind the work. Mm. Well, you know, Professor Tyler, I could already hear the pushback because police will tell you this is a safety issue and that sounds very touchy-feely and that sounds like it, it it puts me in a place of danger or unsafety. And so how do you how do you how do you bring this research uh to police departments in a way that they can grasp what you're talking about and not feel like they're advocating safety for social work? <laughs> no, and I think you're hitting on exactly what most police officers say initially. But you should know that research does not suggest that the current way the police deal with people makes them safer. They may feel safe, but that's not actually what the studies show. They don't. In fact, if you approach people with a, we call it a command and control, a dominance model, like I have power and I'm going to tell you what to do, 30% of the time you provoke active resistance people that you're dealing with and those active resistance events are what lead to the kinds of tragedies that we see all too often where the police seriously injure or kill someone. So it's true that the police do often say, you're making, putting me at risk, you're making a dangerous situation for me. And what I say to them is, well, I, I know you feel that way, but here's some evidence that you're not right. The other thing to remember along the same lines is even in the most violent communities, only about 6% of the people in the community are actively engaged in violence. So if you approach everybody in the community as if they're a dangerous felon who's about to kill you, 94% of the time you're wrong. And when you approach those people in a dominating force-based way, they don't want to cooperate with you. So one of the things that we find when the police create a culture of trust is clearance rates go up because people help them. People say, well, I know who the criminal is. I know who did that. So that also is something that the police constantly, constantly complain about, that we don't get any cooperation from the community. That makes their lives dangerous because they're not able to apprehend people and this helps them that way. So I think you can make a case that even from the point of view of the police, this is a better strategy. And of course, 
my concern is also from the point of the community, it's a much better strategy because it's much less dangerous for the people in the community who are less likely to be injured in these incidents with the police. So, so Professor Tyler, are there communities that this is an easier do than in some communities? Like, I would imagine they don't have a policing problem in like Westport or Greenwich or 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 any place like that. But but I would I would say New Haven has a policing problem. Hartford has a policing problem. And, and you know, Bridgeport has a policing problem. Are, am I am I looking at this the right sort of way? Yes. Well, it's true that suburban communities where people have high income and steady jobs tend to have lower crime rates. And we all know that crime comes out of poverty. So if communities have a larger proportion of people who are struggling economically, then they have higher crime rates. And unfortunately, those are often communities with the history of bad relations with the police. So people don't trust the police anyway. And what we find is this strategy still works in those communities. It's just a longer term strategy. If people don't trust you in the beginning, you have to work harder to earn their trust. If people trust you already, it's less of a problem. But I would say that we've done research in many communities that are communities that have high rates of poverty. Um, and this strategy still is effective in improving police community relations. But I don't want to deny what you're saying, which is if you're dealing with communities where people are struggling and where they mistrust the police because of a history of poor relations with the police, it takes longer, it's harder. So the police have to hang in there, they have to work on it. And we find in, a, in many communities, just an example, Oakland, California, very successful strategy in the community that has had a long history of conflict between the police and the community because the police have been hanging in there. You know, they've been working on this over time. So this is not a strategy where you just turn on a light switch and suddenly people trust the police. You have to work on it. Um, well, you know, in New Haven, you know, some years ago, at least 25 years ago, you know, we started this idea of community policing where just what you're talking about, that the community would be better partners with folks in community in ways to sort of protect and serve. And and for a hot minute, I think that that idea worked. But then, you know, you have a changing of the guards, Professor Tyler, and, and some folks are not on that page with that kind of thinking around policing. There are people who hold old fashioned views on what policing is. And, and so the culture um, never catches up with uh, this kind of community-based uh, policing initiative? Well, the biggest problem that we have had in our efforts to change community police relations is exactly what you said. The average length of time that a police chief is a police chief in a city is about three years. So you're constantly seeing this churning of police chiefs across time, and that makes it hard to have continuity. So you need continuity on the city council level, the mayor's level, not just the police chief. But yes, it's been a challenge in those cities where there hasn't been consistency. It hasn't, there hasn't been much progress. I can only say as a way of expressing hope that those cities that have been persistent in their efforts have seen real change. 
You know, the other aspect of this that you're mentioning is community policing. It's true that most of the police cars that drive by in many cities say community policing on them. But you have to go back and realize that that's because the federal government gave local police departments a lot of money if they would say they were in favor of community policing. And recent research of community policing programs has suggested that there's like no coherent structure to what they meant by that. So some police departments then will have bicycle patrols or other police departments will have a youth camp and some of our officers will be youth camp officers. So there's no coherence in how the police departments have actually implemented this vague concept of community policing. So if you look at it from my point of view, I can't be responsible for the fact that people who didn't do it from my point of view the right way, it didn't work. I can only say that the programs that we have supported have been studied by research and found to promote changes, like changes in the number of civilian complaints against the police, changes in the number of uses of force by the police. So change is possible, but again, you're putting your finger right on the biggest problem in American policing, which is the, the churning, the constant churning of police chiefs, um, which makes continuity of change really challenging. So where do you think change can happen? I mean, is is change, uh, do, do you put this research in academies, police academies, so that they learn from from the onset that this this is something um, that we can build into policing. Do you do you take this research to the federal level and say, like, when y'all dole out money, there here are some parameters in which you can you you can get police departments to sort of be about community policing. Like, where where does this research go, and and how useful can it be in changing culture? Well, the research can be useful in changing culture when there's a will to change the culture, and I want to speak very respectfully of. Uh, President Obama. When he was the president, I think he made the most systematic efforts that we've seen to try to use the federal government to change the culture of policing. For example, I work at the Justice Collaboratory at Yale. We created training for police departments that we gave to the federal government, and the Obama administration was basically passing it out all over the country. Hundreds of departments were using it, uh, departments like Chicago and New York have taken some of this training and used it. And that has, where that has been done, we've shown that it actually has changed the culture of policing. The problem, again, has been this churning. So when the Trump administration came in, they weren't interested in police reform, so they weren't doing this anymore. And now I would say the Biden administration is, I would describe them as very ambiguous in whether they actually support police reform or not. So if there is an effort on the federal level, that can have a big impact and that can have a national impact. As I'm sure you're aware, one of the biggest problems we face is the local nature of policing in America. There's over 18,000 police departments in the United States, and over half of them have left from less than 50 officers. So all across the country, we have all these small departments and if the federal government doesn't lead the way to change, it's hard to reach all those departments. Mm. All right. So, so Professor Tyler, how do we, how do we do with the the public relations impl implica implications of this? Because I would imagine 
um, when you when you talk to communities, all they want is safety. And if you and if they start to feel like um, police are are not going to are, are going to be less ready to shoot and kill, <laughs> and and more yeah. ready to just talk yeah. talk to somebody who's committing crimes or whatever. That's people in the community and people outside of communities are going to be like that's soft. Like that's soft, and I want I want a militarized police presence because it makes me feel safer when I walk down the street and I want to see I want to see militarized uh, a police force. Yes, one of the biggest problems that we have is communicating research findings to people who are frightened, and that is our job. That is our effort. It's challenging. You know, I think a good example of that is recent efforts by some political figures in New York to scare everyone by saying crime is rising. Crime today is about 20, 25% what it was in the 1980s. And that includes violent crime. So, you know, we live in an era of actually low crime, but people's fear of crime hasn't gone down at all since the 1980s. So their fears have not much of a connection to reality. And that doesn't mean they're not real. I mean, it means that's the way they feel. But so we work to try to communicate to people first that the danger is not as extreme as you imagine it is, that you are safer than you think you are. But also to communicate to people that a lot of things that you might imagine would work don't work. And I'll give one example that I think it's been very much in the political picture. Uh, scared straight camps. You know, there are these camps where you take kids that do something wrong and you throw them in with hardened prisoners. You try to scare them with the idea that, look, this is where you're going to turn out if you don't shape up. There's lots and lots of research that shows they absolutely do not work at all. And they don't, you know, they don't do any good whatsoever. But still, they sound great. It sounds like sticking some kid in prison would scare him and hurt her, and they wouldn't commit crimes again. No, that's not true at all. So again, we have to like communicate truth and try to show people that the evidence is not there. I think one of the most challenging problems we have in America, why do the police carry guns? You might say, well, they want to make everybody safe. But studies that compare the American police to the police in countries where they don't carry guns does not support the argument that the police are safer or the public is safer with armed police officers. Again, that's true, but try to tell somebody that. I mean, try to convince an American that not having a gun, it could still be safe. But why is that true? It's because the mere fact of having guns raises the, the tempo of anger, conflict, which often leads to shooting, stabbing, beating up. And without guns, there's much more of a tendency to try to talk, compromise, calm things down. So there are a lot of myths that exist in America that are not particularly helpful. And I think part of our job is to try to communicate to people what's truth, and then try to suggest the implications of that truth for how we might do policy. Whoa, whoa, Professor Tyler. Let me tell you something. I'm going to get a gazillion letters from the pro-gun people. <laughs> the, you know, America has a gun sickness. We have a we have a gun disease in this country. 
And there is, I just don't believe there's any way that you can convince anybody that guns are not a tool of safety. They just, they just, it's just ingrained. It's, it's how the West was won. It's, 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 you know, it's all these, it's, it's all these things that are, are ingrained in people, you know, keep a gun in your house and a firearm here. And, and, and I can't imagine a, a police force without firearms. So that's a, that's a hard pushback. Like that's a hard, hard yes. pushback. I agree with you. And, you know, you just mentioned another, what's the most likely consequence of buying a gun and putting it in your house? It's that the criminal will take it away from you and shoot. That's what the research shows. I mean, it doesn't actually make people safer. It makes their life more dangerous. But again, it's hard to convince people. But I would say that one thing that we have had more success with is trying to look for kind of win-win situations. And one of the best win-win situations, from my point of view, is trying to improve the life of police officers. So if I say that the things that I'm telling you help the police to deal better with the community, okay. But how about if I say that the things I'm telling you make the life of police officers better? Well, that's what we find. Policing is a really stressful job. Police officers die young. They die from heart attacks. They die from drug use, from alcoholism. They have divorce. They have just a whole range of the things that are caused by constantly living in a stressful, frightening environment. If the police adopt the strategies that we're talking about, their health gets better because their life is less stressful. Everyone they deal with is not mad at them, not fighting with them. They can establish positive relationships with people. They can cooperate with people. So if you just said what would be good for police officers, this, these strategies are better for police officers. And so when we approach police departments or police unions, we emphasize the benefits for their members. And there are, of course, as I mentioned, also benefits for the community. But here, the point is, you want change, you look for win-wins. So this is a win for the police, it's a win for the community. And I think that kind of argument may get us further than trying to convince people that they shouldn't have guns. Mm. So, so... So where could where could this start? Like where where do you start with this conversation? Does it start with police unions? Does it start with uh, cities and towns and legislative leadership? Like like where is the beginning of opening the conversation about police safety, police mental health? Because I think that's a great way to frame out changing the culture of policing when you when you when you say. You know, the way to keep police safe is to provide opportunities for them to have a a, a better, better uh, uh, care of themselves. Right. And so, you know, what we try to emphasize when we deal with police departments, and like in our training program, is that you, you can have a better life. Here's a way to deal with the community, here's a way to organize the police department that will make your life better. And ironically, often the challenge is the chiefs who have been trained in this military command and control style of leadership where they don't understand the value of actually treating their officers the way they're telling their officers they should treat the community. 
like most line officers that we talk to say, my chief never listens to me, never asks me what I think, isn't interested in my opinion, will throw me under the bus for a nickel, don't trust them. So police chiefs can change the culture of their departments by enacting some of the ideas of fairness that we're talking about. Listening to people, explaining policies and practices, treating people and their concerns with respect, and generally being the kind of person that you would trust to have your back, to care about what happens to you. If, if the leadership does that, then they promote a healthy climate in their department. And we find that that rolls out into the community, into the way the officers treat the community. Wow. So so does it help if, if, if boards of police commissioners and civilian review boards sort of uh, understand this research and sort of uh, 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 sets a tone that we expect this to be implemented or or um, consider this this new way of thinking about policing and community policing? Like, does that is that a good way to go about this, too? Can can that have some effect? I think that that would be great and could only have a positive effect. A good example of that is New Haven, where the police commission has been in partnership with the police department, making that kind of message a part of what they say. And I know the chief has thought about that, has implemented some of those ideas. So yes, I think that having some kind of civilian review board or commission that can speak to the police is a good thing. It's part of sharing responsibility if you look at the departments that have been successful in change, and I use two examples, Stockton and Oakland, California, the thing that has been central to their success is a partnership between the police and the community, where you have commissions, you have public groups, and you have the department working together to talk about change. So nobody is in control, they're cooperating. And over time, this has been the most effective model for producing change. And you, in order to do that, yes, you have to have the community. There has to be a commission or some, some community forum where the community can express itself to the city, to the police in a sustained way. Mm. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I deliberately did not lead with talking to you about how race plays out in these in these matters because I, I wanted to sort of lay a foundation for talking about policing. But now I want to add. So how does race and 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 the idea of race um, overlay on uh, race on top of this uh, plays out? And what does the research tell us? Well, I'm glad that you put it that way because the point I always make is even if the police didn't treat minorities worse than white people, we'd still have a lot of room for reform and policing. But the police do treat minorities worse than white people, and that's a separate and additional issue that we have to try to deal with. There's a long history, obviously, of the police in our society, in American society, being the, the group that kept subordinated groups down whether it's the police enforcing slave laws in um, American cities in the early 20th century, the police were the people who were beating up strikers on behalf of the owners of the industries. The police have been the agents of social control 
or whoever was running different communities throughout American history. And obviously, often the people who are running communities are not minorities. They're the white establishment. So the front of police control efforts has been directed towards minority groups. And it's an interesting finding in uh, the work on New York City during the stop, question, and frisk era. Who did the police stop, question, and frisk? What's the best predictor? It's not the crime rate of the area where they live. It's the proportion of people in a given police district that are not white. The highly non-white groups got stopped, questioned, searched more often, controlling for any kind of crime rate. So it was clearly some sort of a, an effort directed at minority groups, not explained by the police just trying to control crime. And I don't think you'd, you know, you'd say that's only New York. I think that's been a general pattern as long as we've had American history. So we are constantly including in our efforts training on bias, uh, part of the training program that I mentioned that we worked with the federal government on, built off Center for Policing Equity worked with us. We had a module on implicit bias, how to understand it, how to recognize it, how to deal with it. So we are trying to bring in issues of bias in addition to these issues of treating people justly, because I think they're both related to police community relations. People are not going to have good relations with the police in their community if they think the police are racist. And unfortunately, in the past, certainly often they have a racist. Mm. So, so Professor Tyler, you've been doing this for some time now. What what does the future look like? Can 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 this research predict? a future, an alternate future, a dystopian future? Like, like where, where do we, where, where could we end up? Yes, no, maybe, you know, if we change, we could be here. If we don't change, we could be there. What does it tell you? I would think the most promising aspect of the work that I've done is that if the police treat people in the community fairly, and people in the community come to trust and feel the police are legitimate, it doesn't just lower the crime rate, and it doesn't just cause people to be more willing to help the police identify criminals. It also supports efforts to build strong communities. So if people live in a community where they trust the police, they're more willing to engage in that community economically, they have stronger associations with other people in the community. They participate more in local politics. So the police can have a role to build communities. It has nothing particularly specific way to do with fighting crime. It has to do with creating a climate within which people feel safe. And as we just said earlier, safety is not the same thing as crime rates. People feel safe, they engage in their community. If they engage in their community, their community develops. So I think the future lies in focusing the police on how they can have a productive role in building communities. Now, the flip side of that is to say to the police, since the crime rate is so low, why do we have all you guys around? What, what function are you playing in the community? There's as many police officers in America today as there were in 1980 when the crime rate was four times as high. What useful function are the police playing in communities that are strapped for money? 
right now, that function is to fight crime. But if the police can understand this strategy as a way to have a different set of goals for themselves, they can become important in efforts to develop communities. And I think that's what we all really want is for communities to develop over time, economically, socially, politically. So that to me is a future course that involves communities holding the police more to account for a broader set of goals. Today, wow. for most police departments, it's only about what's the crime rate. And I think hmm. that's too limited. Well, I so appreciate this conversation, Professor Tyler. You have to come back because there's more that I want to ask. <laughs> there's more that I want to talk about in this larger uh, picture uh, around policing and the future of policing. Um, so I, I so I so appreciate this conversation and the work that you've done. And uh, gosh, this is fascinating stuff. It really is. And I wish that uh, uh, the, the, the wider community could have better access to what the research tells us. And maybe that'd go a long way in swaging fears of, of, of a police state. <laughs> well, it's great to have a chance to talk to you. And I think you speak to that broader audience. So you have my message. I have it. Thank you very much, Professor Tyler. And congratulations on the Oscars of, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the I'll tell you the thing about it, maybe as a final story. Everyone seems most excited by the fact that this is being given to me by the Queen of Sweden. I think a lot of people have no idea where I'm getting this award, but everyone's very excited that I get to meet the Queen. <laughs> well, you know, everybody loves a good fairy tale. You know what I mean? Like we... <laughs> You know, Americans have, I don't know if it's an unhealthy fascination with monarchies and royalty, but we do. So, you know, so yeah, so make sure you take a good selfie with the with the queen. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being on today and happy holidays. And, uh, and uh, thank Beth Parker for coordinating this and feel free to come back anytime. Okay, thank you. Good to be thank here. you. Good to see you. All right. Thank you, Harry Drolls. I will be back tomorrow. Tomorrow's Friday, y'all. So y'all have a good weekend. I mean, a good night. I'll be at the theater tonight. I'll talk about the salvages tomorrow. I will start Advent tomorrow. So y'all be good. And I'll see y'all soon. Thank you, Professor Tyler.